So we are in the fifth week of a series that we're calling Christ Alone. It is a series where we are walking through Romans chapter 8, which is sort of the theological epicenter of the New Testament. Uh, It is a phenomenal book of the Bible, Romans, uh, and at the center of of it all is Romans chapter 8. And we've been doing our best to not only just give you information, but proclaim truth for your transformation. And that is that every time that we gather together, here We have a belief, we have a conviction uh, that the truth of God's word is powerful enough to change your life. Uh, and so if you are here today and you are not Christian uh, and you're just exploring faith, you're trying to find out what this Jesus thing is all about, we are so glad that you're here because we believe the message of the gospel will absolutely transform your life. And so that's what we've been doing. We've been walking through it all. And uh, essentially the message so far has been this, that we are free in Christ which means that my identity is no longer bound up in my past failures or my future accomplishments, but my identity, my purpose, my confidence, and my faith is found in Christ alone. And we've been walking through this whole chapter, and it's been a phenomenal time. Uh, Last week, I want to catch you up on what we did uh, last week. Last week, we talked about hope, and I had a big ladder on the stage, and I talked about the ladder of hope, that we are leaning on something in this life and in this world. Oftentimes, it's leaning up against our ability to look good and be accepted by others, our ability to do well at work, our ability to have accomplishments. A lot of times, we lean our hope on financial and our financial situation and what the bottom line of our checkbook says. All of these things we lean our ladder of hope against. But what we essentially said is that our ladder, is, if it's leaning on any of those things, is misplaced. That our ladder of hope, our hope in this life, must lean on Christ and Christ alone. And we get that from Paul essentially saying that the sufferings that we go through now, the challenges, the struggles are nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. That is to say that God has for those who are are in him, who are in Christ, God has a sure future ahead. It's certain you can bet the farm on it. And what that future and what it holds essentially gives us hope for today. And so it's this this idea that God's hope is not just relegated to the future, but is being pulled into the present so that you and I can have hope in, in the midst of our challenges. And we boiled it down to this. Your problem needs perspective. Your problem needs perspective, whether it's a little problem that you've turned into a big problem and allowed to steal your hope, or whether it really is a big problem, a challenge, a difficulty. Your problem needs perspective because the renewal of all things in the future gives us hope for today. And hope is the assurance that leads to eager anticipation. Hope just is not patience where we're just going to try to get it through. We're just going to try to make it. We're just going to wait. Hope is assurance that leads to eager Anticipation. That's what we talked about last week. Okay? And as always, if I'm not careful, I'll preach it all over again. Okay? I thought it was a great message last week. Don't tell me if you agree or not. Okay? So uh, I had a lot of fun, and I have a good word for you today. I am very excited to open God's word with you today. So let's uh, open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. 
verses 26 through 30. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. Uh, we're starting to, to bring this plane in for a landing. Uh, we're in the fifth week. We'll close out this series uh, in uh, next week. And then after that, let me take a commercial break. After that, three weeks, two weeks from today, four, three weeks, we've got a series called Alpha and Omega. Alpha and Omega, where we're going to be exploring the endless connections between the beginning and the end. So for three weeks, we're going to live in Genesis and Revelation. Genesis and Revelation, and we're going to start tying those two together and seeing how that informs our life as we live in between Genesis and Revelation. Alpha and Omega, I am really, really excited about that. So, um, but I don't know that I've ever preached a message that I wasn't excited about. So what I need all of you to do is be excited with me, okay? So that's coming up. Let's read together Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. It says this, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. That probably sounds familiar to many of you, and you didn't know it was in Romans chapter 8. So there it is. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now it's a pretty short passage this morning, but we're going to begin tackling this. And Paul starts it off. Uh, What we have to realize is that while we've sort of separated this in nice, neat little uh, sermons and and kind of sections each week, Romans chapter 8 is one thought. All of Romans is sort of this one major theme running through. And so we can't so nicely separate these as we've done. And so we have to understand that when Paul says, in the same way, it's connecting us to what we've talked about before. Before, right? And so we've talked about this, this living in the middle ground, hope, our, our freedom in Christ, the, the, the imagery of the Exodus coming through in, in Christ setting us free, and yet we're not very good at living as free people. And so we find ourselves in this messy middle ground, right? And so what Paul immediately says is in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And so the first thing we have to understand is what our weakness is. What is Paul talking about? Is he just saying, hey, you're weak and you're no good? Or is there this sort of fundamental foundational weakness that we have and that there's this, this is the way that Paul has to describe it? Well, essentially, our weakness is this state in which we find ourselves living in between. Right? This sort of mucky, messy middle ground, doing our best to live as free people, live into the full freedom that has been made available to us and given to us through the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And so our state of weakness is our state of living in the in-between. Redeemed but not yet fully. Free but not fully free. Experiencing God's new creation, but yet seeing that it hasn't yet come to all of its fullness. This is what Paul describes as our weakness. And the good news that Paul wants to give us right up front is that the Spirit is here to help us in the middle of that weakness. In other words, 
the hope that we talked about last week, this ladder of hope and where is it leaning and all of this stuff, Paul essentially wants to say to us, we live in sort of this broken middle ground where we're redeemed and we experience the redemption of God, but not yet in all of its fullness. And what he wants to say to us is that that hope to which we attain, that hope that we're driving towards, simply is not possible without the influence and the indwelling of the Spirit of God in our lives. Are you with me? This sort of way of of hoping purely on Christ is not possible without the Spirit. So the Spirit is then given to us in order to allow this hope to, to take fruition in us. It is given to us and it lives inside of you. That's what I mean. When the Spirit is given to us, it is a way of saying the Spirit of God is indwelling in us. Did you know that today? That if you are in Christ, the very Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. That you have unlimited power made available to you if we will just learn to live in victory toward that. And so this hope and this ability to call God Abba, Father, is the evidence of the Spirit working and living inside of us. Are you with me so far? And so in our state of weakness, the Spirit is there to help us. Where would we be without God's grace and without His Spirit to lead us and guide us and convict us and teach us and encourage us. And then he says this, that this spirit inside of you is interceding for you. The spirit inside of you is interceding for you. In other words, interceding, that is praying on your behalf. That the spirit of God God himself is praying to God on your behalf. Thanks for coming this morning. That's a great message. Right? I mean, all of us, we could just, if we really learn to grasp and take hold of this truth, that the Spirit of God himself is interceding on your behalf, how would our life be different? I mean, how would that change us if we really got a hold of that, that truth? So Paul's message is essentially here to encourage us and again to give us hope. He's talked about hope. He's taught us about hope. And he is going to give to us that famous passage that is one of the most hopeful verses in all of Scripture. But there's something that we have to talk about before that because Paul talks about it before that. We've just come from this passage where creation is groaning. Right? We've talked about that a couple weeks ago, that creation itself is groaning and longing to be redeemed. In other words, the effect of sin is not just on you and I. It's just not on humans. It affects the entire world, the entire universe. All of creation is, being, is frustrated and subdued and, and knocked down because of the effects of sin. And so Paul says creation itself is groaning and longing to be redeemed. And then he says that we ourselves, having been adopted, having been set free, are still longing for when that adoption will be fully realized, for when we will be fully redeemed. And so creation is groaning, Paul says. We ourselves are groaning, Paul says. And then in this passage today, the Spirit of God is groaning. That's a lot of groaning. And I won't ask you to groan together this morning because that would be a little weird. But that's a lot of groaning going on, right? 
And so we have to first address the question of of what in the world is this groaning? Because it appears to me that Paul is talking about prayer. And in fact, that's exactly what he says. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself is interceding for us through wordless groans. So before Paul starts teaching us and giving us this, this line of tremendous hope, he wants to talk to us about prayer. Now that seems a bit odd, doesn't it? I mean, it seems a bit out of place. It seems sort of disconnected. But I believe that if we begin to look at this and and see it all as this broad scope and this broad picture, we'll begin to see that prayer is absolutely central to what Paul wants to teach us and what he's talking to us about. And so the, the creation is groaning. We are groaning for God's full redemption in our lives. And now the Spirit himself, God himself, is groaning and interceding for us. Now, the first thing that we have to understand is that some people come to this passage and say that the Spirit of God is speaking in tongues on our behalf. Right? And, and they, they understand these sort of wordless groans as what Paul talks about later on in some of his letters as speaking in tongues. This is not what he's talking about. Because it's a totally different Greek word, right? And I could bore you with all the Greek words and I could mispronounce them and tell you how to spell them and all of that. But what you just simply need to know is that what Paul is talking about here is not speaking in tongues as he talks about it in other letters. Paul does say that this is a biblical gift of speaking in tongues. He also gives lots of caution about how it is to be used. And so that's a whole other subject for a whole other day. And this is not what Paul is talking about here. Okay? So that's the first thing we need to understand when we talk about wordless groans. It's not speaking in tongues as it's come to be known sort of in the charismatic movement. So what is groaning? This, This groaning that's being talked about here is, is more like a longing. It's more like a desiring. It's more like a working, right? It's working toward something. So it's not just a desire. It's just not, it's not just a longing. It also has this sense of working toward something, right? So the, the creation is, is groaning and working toward full redemption. We ourselves find ourselves in this in-between time, the already, not yet. The kingdom of God is already here, but not yet in its fullness. And we groan. We desire the full redemption of, of the world and ourselves. And we work toward that in the same way the Spirit of God now here is longing and desiring and working toward full redemption in the same way that you and I and all of creation are. And it's, in other words, do you, have you ever come across these times, right? Because Paul has just finished talking about suffering. Have you ever come across those times in your life where you find it just ex- in exactly impossible to pray? Anybody with me? Have you ever been there? You have no idea what to say? You find it impossible to know how to pray. Okay, I, want, I go and I try to pray, but I don't have any words. I want to pray, but I simply don't feel like it because my faith is weak. There are sort of these hopeless moments in our life that despite the reality that the kingdom of God is bursting in all around us, we simply cannot see it. And so we have to peer into the darkness, holding on to a hope that we think is for sure, We peer into the darkness, and in those moments, we need help. We need assistance of praying God's sure future into the present. In those dark, impossible moments, we need help of praying God's sure and bright future and praying it into the present. 
that I might experience healing, that I might experience reconciliation, that life might be brought to the situation in which I find myself near death. Do you understand what I'm saying? Have you ever been through those moments where we absolutely need the hope of God's sure future, but we need it right now? And that is what the Spirit is here to help us with. See, what Paul does is he places prayer as sort of this essential part of living in the in-between. In other words, prayer is not simply this sort of thing that it, 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 would be, it would be really good for you and I to pray. Paul says, no, this is not simply something you just add on to your life in Christ. It just isn't something that you add on to your spiritual life. He's saying that if you want to to live well in the in-between time, prayer stands at central to all of that. Prayer is a central part of that because prayer itself is a way of of living well in the in-between time. It's part of the redemptive thread that we'll talk more about in a second. In other words, prayer itself is a way of loving God. And what Paul does is... I don't know if you've ever um, experienced this, but in these dark times that I'm talking about, a lot of times we pray or someone prays for us and it gives words to what we know is true, but we can't yet feel. Are you with me? Someone prays for you or prays over you and you say to yourself, that is precisely the truth. That's what your head says. But your heart says, I'm not there yet. I'm not quite to a place in my faith. My faith has been weakened by this challenge enough that while I know that God is good, he sure seems like a bad guy right now. And while I know God is gracious, it seems like I'm being punished. And so someone proclaims the truth over our lives and we know it is true, we can't feel it yet. Prayer has this sort of way of helping our emotions, our heart, catch up with the truth. And you know what? That helped me so much the first time I realized that. That if I pray only in the way that I felt, a lot of times I would would be mad at God. Or a lot of times I would say, God, where are you? What are you doing? But if I allow people to pray over me and articulate the truth of God, it allows my heart and my emotions to catch up with the truth of of God that is actually never changing and is always there. Does that make sense? Let me give you a more specific example. Sometimes written prayers are really good for this because uh, let's say that you find yourself in the middle of a conflict and out of the book of common prayer, I got this prayer that proclaims all kinds of truth that in the middle of a conflict, you wouldn't be able to feel this. You wouldn't be able to, to catch your heart up with this truth and this reality. But praying this already written prayer is a way of sort of living in the in-between time and allowing your heart to catch up to the truth. It says this, Oh God, you have bound us together in a common life. The first line is sort of this 
this rock your world truth that all of us have been bound together in a common life. And I wonder how many times we try to separate ourselves based on economic status, based on the color of our skin, based on the neighborhood in which we live, and we find ourselves in conflict with one another, sometimes because of those superficial means. And the, the first line of this prayer is, Oh God, you have bound us together in a common life. And so help us in the midst of struggles for justice and for truth. Because that's what conflict is, isn't it? At its core, it's two people struggling for justice and struggling for truth. So in this common life, and as we struggle for justice and truth, help us to confront one another without hatred, without bitterness, and to work together with mutual respect through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? In a conflict, your emotions are saying, I'm just angry. And, I wanna, and, and we start bringing out Bible passages like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Woohoo! I'm going to take their eye out, you know? And we start using the Bible as sort of this permission to go and do what my emotions want to do. But prayer stands in this middle gap and allows our heart to catch up with the truth. I think that's why Paul brings prayer to central of what it means to live in the in-between time. So prayer is sort of this, in itself is a way of loving God, but it itself is a way of knowing and not knowing, right? We pray in the confidence and the assurance of the truth of God, all the while not yet fully knowing what is going to come to pass. Prayer is certainty and uncertainty. God, I am certain that you are good. I am certain that you have the resources to see me through on this, and yet I find myself precisely uncertain uncertain of how you're ever going to bring it about. It's knowing and not knowing. It's certainty and uncertainty. Prayer is having nothing and yet possessing all things. Paul brings prayer central to hope, to to living well, to living free. And he says that what we need in our weakness is the help of the Spirit to pray God's good future into our present. To pray God's will on our behalf. I hope that's an encouragement to you today. That in those moments, in those challenges, in that suffering where you find yourself unable to pray, not knowing what to pray, because I've been there. I thought, I thought when I'm in the middle of something, I'm like, man, I got I to gotta pray about this because I, I want to make prayer my, my first response, not my last resort. And so I want to pray about this. And so I go and I start to pray and I sit down and I'm empty. I got nothing. In those moments, Paul encourages us that the Spirit of God is praying the will of God on our behalf and interceding for us. The Spirit steps in and prays God's future into our present. Which would say to me that it is totally appropriate to pray for God's will as it is outlined in Scripture, right? I think sometimes our prayers are a little too wimpy. At least mine are. Right? One of those impossible times where it's hard to pray is we have a loved one that's sick, maybe has a terminal disease, and they are suffering. And we think to ourselves, you know what, it would, you know, their life would be better and they would go on to be with the Lord if they just passed away from this life. And that would be a good thing. 
At the same time, man, I want healing. I desire healing. They want healing. Our family wants healing. And so we kind of default to praying, God, whatever you want to do. And we don't pray very boldly. Well, I think it's pretty clear in Scripture that God is, wants healing. Right? And, and so we can boldly approach the throne of God and pray for healing. God, would you heal him or her? Would you touch their body? Would you pray? Pray boldly. Because Scripture makes it clear that God intends to heal them. Now, whether that be ultimate healing or healing just for a season until death finally takes us all. Whatever that looks like, we can pray boldly for healing because we know that God will bring it about. We can pray boldly for reconciliation. We can pray boldly for freedom. Because the Spirit of God is praying the will of God for us. And so prayer is not sort of this side issue. It's a good thing that we kind of need to tack on to our life as, a, as believers. Prayer sits at the foundation of what it means to live in the in-between time. And prayer is central to weaving God's redemptive thread. Because that's what Paul wants to say next. After he's got, given us the good news that even though we are weak and even in the midst of our weakness, the Spirit of God is there to help us, to lift us up, to lead us, guide us, direct us, encourage us, convict us, pray for us. We are not left alone, but the Spirit of God is there to help us. He wants to lift us up. He wants to give us one of the most helpful and hopeful passages in all of Scripture. He wants to say to us next that God is actively weaving a redemptive thread through all of your life let me give you a hope let me give you hope for the future because he says right after this right after this discussion on prayer he says that we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose all things God works for the good. Another way of understanding this is toward the good. God works all things toward the good. God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now Paul this whole time has been talking about the beautiful things, right? The, the sure future that we have. He's painted this picture of the renewal of all things. And essentially what he says, this is the linchpin. You know what a linchpin is? Something that's indispensable. This is the indispensable truth of all that we've been talking about. Because listen to the train of thought throughout the last previous verses that, you know, that, that we've covered before and we've talked about them, but listen to the, kind of get a broad sweep of what's going on here. Paul says, We are debtors to God, from whom we have received the spirit of adoption, and from whom we shall receive inheritance and the glory and adoption in its fullest form. The move from present to future is made totally secure by the fact that God works all things together right now for those who love him. In other words, we, we want to hope in this future that is secure. How do we know that it's secure? Because we see that God is working all things for the good of those who love him right here and right now. Does that make sense? 
Are you with me? I want to hear a little more. I need more heads nodding, all right? More heads nodding. Say, essentially, this is the linchpin. This is the assurance. This is the insurance policy. If you want to be sure of God's future, take take a look at your life today and see the redemptive thread that God is sowing in your life. It's as though Paul is saying, you want, you want proof that you can have hope and that you can lean your ladder against God's sure future and secure future? Then look at your life right now and see how the messes have been turned into beautiful things. Because it is in God's nature, it is in God's character to redeem. All of our life and all of our lives carry this redemptive thread of good where he is pulling the pieces back together and where his sure future is already breaking in. And it is made possible for those who love God, which itself is made possible by the Spirit of God who enables us to say, Abba, Father. See, the Spirit is integral to all of this. That God is weaving this redemptive thread. That the very worst mess in your life, in God's hands, can become something beautiful. When I was 18 years of age, had just graduated high school, looking forward to moving out and going to college, I was given the news that I had cancer. Now, I had had this lump on my knee my entire life. And it was always just kind of a part of me. It was a little bit sore when I was beginning to work out for sports and other athletics that I was involved in. But once I got going and warmed up, I didn't have any pain. It was just always this lump right below my kneecap. Never thought anything of it. But then one day my brother is beating up on me, as older brothers do. And I have two older brothers, so I know what it's like to take a beating. And so my brother and I are wrestling, and, and he's winning. And uh, he hits that spot on my knee direct, like right on. And I cringe in pain. The absolute worst pain I had ever felt in my life. And so it's like, we probably need to get this thing checked out. It's been around a little while. Uh, It's kind of like a mortgage, you know, or a pet. I've just had it my whole life, and I don't know if it'll ever go away. And so, you know, I've had it. And uh, and so I'm I'm worried, you know. So I go to the doctor, and uh, they say, you know, it seems to be growing, and and you're only 18. You've got some growing still, you know, left to do. And so it'd be in our best interest to to take it out. Uh, But no worries, you know, it's just a cyst. There's no big deal. They get in there to remove it, and they find out that it is not a cyst, but a tumor. They send it away, and they find out that it's malignant. And at 18, having this malignant tumor in my leg for my entire life, there was a season of doubt where we had no idea if my whole body was filled with cancer or if it was localized just to my knee. And that's a mess. 
And I went off to college. Uh, I had my patella tendon replaced, and they had this whole treatment plan and all of this stuff. I went off to college, which is such a formation of identity, right? I mean, those of you that are freshmen or those of you that, you know, just a couple years ago were freshmen, you realize that that year is sort of this this solidifying and this really strong formation. This is who I am. I'm out of the house. Uh, who am I? And in those moments, I, I was dealing with this, this identity crisis of I felt like I wasn't me. I was cancer. And I sort of felt this obligation to introduce myself. You know, hey, uh, my name's Andy, and I've got this, this cancer thing going on. But looking back on that time, and, and obviously I'm, I'm fine now, and, and God's healing is, is tremendous, and the, the cancer was just localized to my knee, which in itself is a miracle for cancer to be there that long and not spread. But I look back at that mess of my life, and I say, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Because in those moments of mess are the moments when I decided that God's faithfulness is real. That the song that says, great is your faithfulness, is true. And I look back at that time, and that was the time where I really solidified my faith through the mess. And my guess would be that many of you have similar stories whether it's cancer or whatever it is, you would describe to me the biggest mess of your life and then you would say to me something like, but it was the best time. It was the most valuable time. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Like that, like that time when you walked through this broken relationship and you experienced on the flip side, it was hard while you were walking through it. But as you look back on it, you realize God's healing is absolutely real. You, you realize that in those moments, the Spirit of God was speaking to you in very real and very profound ways to allow you to become a better person for Him and for other people around you. That you grew as a, as a result of that. Now, I don't believe that, that God is over there breaking relationships. And I don't believe that God is out there giving people cancer so that He can work good out of their life. I believe the sovereignty of God is so powerful that he can take the muck and the mess and the mire and just the, the crap, right? I know you're not supposed to say that from the pulpit, but let's just be honest. The crap of our life and turn it into something beautiful and valuable for us. See, I don't believe that God is out there slinging junk at you just so he can work in your life. I believe that the stuff is being slung at us because of the world that we live in is broken by sin. And God's sovereign and redeeming nature is saying, let me take that mess and turn it into something beautiful. Let me take that dust and bring a garden out of it. Let me take that, that absolute something that was destructive and let me build something out of it. And some of you can point to a very dark time in your life. I don't care what it is. Or what brought about the darkness. But you look at that dark time and you come to the other side of it. And you say, you know what? My marriage got a lot better. We started talking. We started communicating. You go through that dark time and you say, my faith is a lot stronger because of it. This is God's redemptive thread. 
And he is sowing it in all of our lives. Now there's a part there, Paul says, for those who love him. But I believe there's this other thing later on in the passage that really helps us to understand that God is weaving a redemptive thread through everybody's life. We know that all things work toward the good or for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well then, I mean, this seems really disconnected and disjointed, doesn't it? Because then Paul starts getting into all this foreknowing and predestination. And, you know, we carry all sorts of baggage into passages like that. And and we say, you know, is Paul just a determinist where some of us, no matter what we do, we're not going to get in. Right, Because for a lot of times we just understand that the main goal of our life and our, of our faith is just to get in at the end and all this stuff. And so we understand Paul has just always only got certain people that God's kind of choosing people. He's predestined them. He's foreknowledge, he has foreknowledge of them and all this kind of stuff. Well, let's unpack these words that have all kinds of baggage to really get at what Paul is saying here and to understand it again in the context. Because what Paul is not talking about is personal predestination and your salvation. That wouldn't make any sense in this context, right? But these are sort of the crashing chords at the end of a movement. These are, are the are, are the peak of, a, of the musical score that Paul has been writing and weaving all together. And they are, uh, they are Christ-shaped. All these crashing chords, all these things that are happening here, and all these words that we get caught up in are really moving us towards a Christ shape. That which is true of the Messiah, Paul is wanting to say, essentially, is also true of his people. Because if we look at this order, if we look at this order... What we see is that Jesus himself has walked through all of these things. That God foreknew him, he was predestined, that he was called, justified, and then glorified. This is the, the, the sort of journey that Christ has taken. And what is true of Christ is true of his people. That's one of the things that Paul, one of the main things that Paul has been saying here. And so here's an explanation. Essentially what this is, is an explanation of what it means to be, call, to be called according to his purpose. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now Paul wants to say, let me explain what it means to be called according to his purpose. All of these things have happened to and in Christ. And what is true of him is true of his people. So you and I are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And everybody said, uh, amen, and I'm confused, right? Everyone gave a half-hearted amen. <laughs> Let's walk through this. Foreknowledge. The Greek here is this, this idea of love and of grace that God is reaching out to us to reveal his love to us and then solicit a love in return. That's sort of the impact of this word foreknowledge. That God is reaching out to us, loving us, and soliciting a love from us. And that's why I say with confidence that if you are here today and you have not yet accepted Christ, you're not yet living as a believer or a follower of the way, that God is still weaving that redemptive thread. The theological term is called prevenient grace. 
that God is chasing you and loving you and inviting you into him. And so for those of you who would say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with this Jesus thing. Somebody drug me here today and I don't want to be here. And this is getting pretty long and the football game already started. So wrap it up, preacher. If that's you today, wake up now because I'm talking to you. God foreknew you. He loves you. He's chasing you with his love. And he is inviting you to love him in return. And you also have the evidence of the redemptive thread of God in your life. Your life has God's fingerprints all over it. And a lot of times it sounds like, man, I don't know how that turned out like it did. Somebody was watching over us. Yep. I mean, it, it, it sounds like a lot of different things. It sounds like even in that impossible situation, I felt calm. It sounds like I never thought I'd forgive that person. It sounds like, you know, healing happened over that conflict. Maybe it was you were able to heal from the loss of your loved one. The healing, the forgiveness, the protection, these are all God's redemptive thread being woven and sewn into your life. For God has foreknown each one of us, and he has chased us with his love. For those that God foreknew, he also predestined. And that is not, he has determined who will be saved and get the, the ticket on the J train to heaven, right? This is, the, the, the sense or the impact of this word is that those he has he predestined, they have been set apart for a particular purpose. In other words, you have been set apart to answer God's love inside of your vocation. Now, sometimes God pulls us out of our vocation and calls us into different areas, but primarily you have been foreknown, you've been chased, you've been loved, even prior to your loving or even your awareness, and you have also been predestined. That is, you have been invited into this love And inside of your particular vocation, that is, if you are a business person, there is room for you to love God and be a business person, right? Being predestined does not just mean that you got to go to Africa and, and work in the most remote places of the world. It means that you, that God can take you in the middle of right where you're at and that you can love him effectively in that because doesn't the world need more Christian business people, more Christian teachers, more of those who will answer his call and invitation of love wherever they are in their life. Those he foreknew he is also predestined and he is called. This is a way that Paul uses over and over again in all of his letters when he talks about someone being called, when he talks about himself being called, is a way of talking about that person uh, making the act of response. That this invitation has been given to love God in return to the love that he has already given out in the middle of their vocation, foreknown, predestined, and then called. That means that person has decided. They've come to know Christ. They've answered his call of love. It's a, descri- it's a description of our response. And when we do respond to his love, 
Paul, all the time in his letters, calls it God's call on our life. God has called us and we have responded. And those that he has called, he has justified. That is, we have been brought into God's family. We've been declared not guilty, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been placed in the right standing before God. Declared not guilty despite all the mess and the mistakes and the mess up and the sin. When we answer that call of God and the love that is reaching out to us, we are justified, adopted, and made free. And those he has justified, he is also glorified. We now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we are then invited into the kingdom of God and the realization of the kingdom of God in the world. We are now co-creators. We are now co-workers with Christ for the kingdom of God. We are heirs with Christ. We talked about what it means for us to have that, that glory last week. Those he foreknew, predestined, then he called, then he justified, then he glorified. This is the path of Christ himself. All of these things are true in and of Jesus Christ. And what is true of, his, of him is true of his people. But for what purpose? Just so we can resemble Christ? Although that's a very glorious and honorable goal and end. Is it just so we can sort of represent Christ or or, or be like Christ? It is rather that we are now his image bearers in the world as we might reflect the image of God to the world, now bringing healing, bringing hope, bringing freedom, bringing life, all the things that we have once experienced as we have walked through this, we are now commissioned to go and bring about in the world. God's freedom people are commissioned to be freedom bringers. God's freedom people are commissioned to be freedom bringers. So I just have some questions in conclusion today. You can answer them on your own time this week. Think about them as, as we go into our time of response and reflection. But here's the truth. And here are the questions that I want to point you to. What are the ways in which you have experienced God's redemption? What, are the, what is the evidence in your own life of God's redemptive thread? And that's a good question for you, whether you're following Christ and you've known him for a long time or whether you're just exploring faith and you're not sure about this Jesus thing yet. Look back on your life and try to discern the hand of God and how he has sown his redemptive thread through your life. Second question, what are the ways in which you can help bring God's redemption? Because Paul's essential message here is that what is true of Christ is true of his people. And we have been given redemption through Christ so that Christ through us now can work in the world for freedom, for healing, for reconciliation. That we become the hands of Christ. We become the hands of God working for all of this in the world. So what are the ways in which you can bring, help bring God's Redemption. For God's free people have become his freedom bringers. And those who have had the redemptive thread sown into them, themselves become sowers. On behalf of God, 
in this life and in this world. I hope this is an encouraging message for you today. I hope that you've been uplifted. I hope you've been encouraged by the truth of God and the power that it has to transform your life.